Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, April 12, 2020. The share ID numbers for Friday, April 10th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 14,413. That's 14413. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 14,414. That's 14414. Today, A Vision for You presents We Were Reborn. The big book was written as a set of directions for doing the 12 steps. The promise of the 12-step process is one of a spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery and to overcome compulsive overeating. The 12 steps are a specific method for producing this personal transformation, a rebirth not of body, but of our minds, we are changed in the way we think, we are changed in the way we feel, we are changed in the way we behave as a result of this transformation. We experience a freedom from the obsession of the mind, the greater aspect of our disease. We have been restored to sanity. The steps have removed the obstacles which block us from the higher power deep down within us. So we now have contact with that higher power and are restored to sanity. Joining us this morning to elaborate on this topic is Larry Kay, a recovered compulsive overeater from Chicago. Larry is dedicated to living the 12 steps, devoted to enlarging his spiritual life, and passionate about carrying this message of recovery. And it's with great appreciation and always a pleasure to welcome Larry Kay. Good morning, Larry. Good morning, Leah. Thanks so much for, for the opportunity jumping in here. And I'm, well, I'm happy to do it. Um, you, talk, you talked to, about change. And I want to I wanna take a look at that because we're, we're talking about a rebirth here. And uh, you know, change really in the big book shows up, that word change shows up um, in, in, in many different instances throughout the big book. And I'm just going to touch on a, on a, on a few here. And in, in the doctor's opinion, right off the, right off the bat, it talks about the uh, one feels on page XXIX, uh, one feels more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change Bill used a lot of words, Dr. Silkworth uh, did as well, to describe a lot of the same things, right? And, um, and, and, and in the chapter Into Action, page 84, our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change, right? And also on page, uh, page uh, 51 in We Agnostics, they show how the change came over them. There had been, also on page 51, there had been a revolutionary change. That seems to be the consistent message here. Change of heart. You know, a dramatic, convincing, moving change. It even, it even talks about uh, further, further along in the text, um, um, it, it, it talks about the psychic change. 
we learn as we study the text, it talks about a, a spiritual awakening, a, a spiritual transformation. <clears throat> and, you know, when I came to OA, I, I well, one, I was, I was 100 pounds heavier approximately. Um, I certainly wanted to change there. Uh, I didn't come to Overeaters Anonymous uh, to experience some sort of revolutionary internal change. That wasn't why I got here. I got here because I was miserable in many ways. You know, the, the, the enthusiasm for Overeaters Anonymous is part of a, a telephone meeting. Here we have a vision for you. I don't, we've been around for quite a few years now. Is it eight, seven, eight, nine years? Vision for you. It's, it's pretty extraordinary. And, and why is that? Because I think it's a good lead in to talk about this, this change, right? Um, one of the reasons it's healthy is because people are getting well. Not, not everyone's getting well, but the people that follow this practical program of action, they put their food down, they get well. There's, there's a power in our collective experience. There's a power in our individual experience. You know, we devote ourselves to the basic program of action found in the text that was, as you know, was published in 1939, Alcoholics Anonymous, that we, we refer to as the big book. And, and Bill Wilson said something that I think is pretty profound. He said at some point that, 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 uh, that nothing that we do in this program is new. Nothing's new. In other words, the principles found in AA and OA are as old as time itself. And the reason the principles work when you work them is because they're true. There's some sort of true north to these principles. You know, they, they, they work. As a matter of fact, they work for anyone. And an indication of that is, I believe, uh, there are something like 300, I think I, I heard there's about 300 12-step programs that all follow these basic principles. And, and to the extent that they, they stick to the basic principles as our founders intended them to be worked in the big book here, to the extent that they do that, people in those fellowships get well. They experience a rebirth of sorts, right? They, they experience a transformation. And all these 12-step programs within, you know, the hundreds of, of, of fellowship groups around the world are like a giant tapestry artwork in some sense. You know, if, you, if you ever look, I, I don't have an artist. I don't have a, a, a cogent thought in my head half the time, and I certainly don't have any artistic talent. But 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 if you if you even look at a giant uh, tapestry artwork of some kind, some of you may be involved in that sort of thing. And one side, you know, that I have great appreciation for is the, the amazing picture that you see. You know, I see these people with the artistic talent, and and it's a scene of some sort. And um, and and you know, uh, but if you look behind the huge art piece. There's a thousand strands of thread, and they're going this way and that, and they're going all in all sorts of different directions. And if you were to pull on a thread on the backside over here, you know what happens is the picture on the other side will change, and all those those strands of thread represent members of the fellowship, you know, uh, trudging this this happy road of destiny together. All of us dependent upon each other. We certainly can't do this ourselves. And it's, a, it's really a beautiful mosaic that's being built one day at a time within these fellowships. And if we want that ever-expanding mosaic uh, you know, you know, to be here, 
yeah, I think about this, to be here 100 years, 200, you know, what happens? The one thing that I'm pretty sure of is that everyone on the line is going to be dead in 100 years. <laughs> I don't say that in any morbid sense, just the reality. Um, it, but I think it's really incumbent upon us to make sure that we recover individually and certainly collectively on a spiritual basis, right? Because, um, you know, if you're, for example, uh, Bill said that the Oxford groupers, you know, the early Christian movement, um, they, 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 he, he and others learned, they showed them what to do. And, and just in, in the same way, they also showed them what not to do. And if you're looking for the Oxford group in 2020, here we are in uh, approaching May, April, in 2020, you're, you're not going to find them. That was a great group. It was founded in 1931 by a guy by the name of Frank Buckman, and I'll let Harlan and others tell you all about Frank Buckman. I probably could tell you a few things, but I don't want to digress. Um, but you're not going to find the Oxford group, nor will you find a local chapter of the Washingtonians. Washingtonians, they were a temperance society, an abstinence society, if you will. They were refraining from their Oreo cookies, but it was alcohol, right? And uh, they were founded in 1840. I guess there was like six drunks that founded that group. And it was a, it was a growing uh, fellowship of people that had a common cause. It was really a good thing. Uh, you're not going to find the Washingtonians today. Did you know that in 1967, I'll give you another example. In 1967, I researched this, um, there was approximately 500 people. They met in, in uh, Central Park in New York in 1967 to advocate for the acceptance of obese people. I think it was a good cause, and, and, and many of us on the line, I know I can, I can relate about, uh, about the uh, disenfranchisement of, 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 of people who are obese. I think it's a great cause, but there was, there was no real continuity there. And this group... Um, it was a grassroots social movement. It was initially started by someone probably like Leah or Melanie or, you know, that type of personality that just had, you know, was driven to start for a good reason, right? And there was discrimination against these people. And at this, in Central Park, they burned uh, diet books and they, um, you know, they, uh, uh, they had signs and they carried signs. And, and there was even a, uh, they, they formed uh, something called NAAFA, National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance. And by 2001, I believe, there were very few people that attended these events. It's basically defunct now. So, so I bring this up all to say, and I'm going to tie, tie it back to, to this, this notion of being reborn. What makes us think that a vision for you will be around in the year 2120 you know i mean i mean we'll be gone right but 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 i mean what what makes us think that it'll be around how about oa as a whole what, are, are we assured that oa is going to be around which really leads me to this that that the only way and the only reason you know we we believe that god somehow is at the core of all this and we, we do believe many of us believe that this whole movement is divine in nature right but it is incumbent upon us getting well, becoming reborn, having some sort of uh, spiritual transformation, some sort of inward restructuring where 
we, we don't think the way we used to think. We don't behave the way we used to behave. And we're set out on a, on a journey, a walk in alignment with our higher power. If we don't continue along those lines, um, there's no question a vision for you will not be here. I'm, I'm certain of that. Which leads me to this. There's a guy, if you've ever heard of Aldous Huxley, he was the guy that wrote, um, he was a British um, writer, great writer, philosopher. He wrote uh, the classic, A Brave New World. And and he was was involved uh, with Bill Wilson for a time, and he said that AA was the greatest social movement of the 20th century. And and he he referred to Bill as as a great social architect. And, and so let's, let's bring this back, if, if you'll allow me, to a discussion of being reborn uh, through spiritual recovery by gaining access to a power through the 12 steps. So let me segue to a topic that I, I think is, is, is crucial, crucial in navigating towards this, this restorative spiritual process, right? I think that the biggest barrier to alignment with our higher power is perhaps an underlying self-hatred. And underlie that may be a strong term, but 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 self self loathing. The biggest suffering that I meet as both a psychologist and maybe more importantly a carrier of this message of recovery, the biggest suffering that I meet is people who don't like themselves very much. And so that underlying self loathing, whether you're successful, and many of you are in your careers and in your family or you've done wonderful projects within your community, this seems to be a very pervasive and troubling um, situation in our society today, this, this notion of self-loathing. And so I thought that it would be important to talk about the issues that surround, you know, what I'm going to call self-importance. And the big book again and again refers to the continual manifestation of the ego as the very root of our malady. So this is pretty critical that we take a look at this in the context of the steps and in navigating towards a a rebirth here that God will bring about. Self-importance for our purposes here this morning is actually the the tendency that we have to make ourselves the center of our experience. You know, that is to say that, that, that we imagine that we control our lives, we we imagine that we can manage things well, our environment, the people in our environment, our circumstances. We imagine that our consciousness uh, comes from somehow inside ourselves, from our brain and from our awareness. And then with this illusion of self-importance, with this, this focus on self-absorption, that is this focus on our, ourself as, 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 a, as the center, we actually don't really feel important at all that's the irony of it that's the paradox of it instead we often actually feel haunted by that negative commentary you know that 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 runs through our minds on a continual loop like judging ourselves in terms of the way we look what we're capable of doing we judge ourselves we we how how we look at how we compare ourselves to others our intellect our our physical packaging our likability our wealth and we always come up short somehow we come up short we always judge ourselves as lacking and and then we come into this program and in 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 with comparison we we see how we 
are lacking and we look around the room and we, we, we figure everyone is getting this but, but us. I remember feeling that way. And I did feel that way for a long time, always coming up short, always judging myself as not being enough. And even if we feel sometimes superior as human beings can in some way, in some capacity, we inevitably, ironically, come up lacking because even then we know in our heart of hearts that we shouldn't feel that way. We shouldn't elevate ourselves. We feel shame about that. So this tendency to feel that we control our lives, manage things independently actually has been enhanced in our society because these are, you know, these are the very things that are often valued in our society. And it's, it's a big mistake. It's a big mistake when we come into the rooms here. Now we arrive at the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous and, and if, if we pay the, the least bit of attention, we hopefully begin to learn that we are powerless, we are spiritually bankrupt, you know, and, and, and we lead lives of unmanageability. And, and there's no conceivable way we learn that we can extricate ourselves from this condition. We must be reborn with God's help. And it's a, it's a symbiotic kind of dance between, between working the steps, right? We're doing the work, and yet somehow God's doing the changing, and, it, and, and now, in contrast, we look at being reborn, being inwardly restructured, restored to sanity. There's a restoration process. And, and there's talk in the big book about this. We, we say it all the time, happy, joyous, and free. We want to get to this, to this place of nirvana, which is happy, joyous, and free. And we have some preconceptions about that. But let's examine happiness for a moment. And perhaps a, a working definition of this type of happiness is that state of being in which you do not want to be in another state. When you're happy, you're not restless. You're not distracted when you're happy. You're not discontent. Happiness does not produce anger and irritability. When you're happy, hard to define exactly, but we're trying to zero in on it, you don't have a desire to do something else or be someone else in this happy, joyous, and free state. In fact, you're completely engaged, and although you're human and you're imperf imperfect, you're, you're involved, you're, you're immersed, you're involved in your direct experience. And you, and you recognize this, you have awareness for this and, and from, from your own experience. And, and, and I acknowledge it doesn't always equate with, with the feelings of exhilaration or pure joy, but, but it occurs when you're doing things, you, you, you know, maybe you're making love. It occurs when you're preparing a meal. It occurs when you're meditating. Or maybe you're engaged in other activities that you're immersed in. So to shift back to the steps for a brief moment, I would, I would suggest to you, I would suggest to anyone that it is important to work the steps paying particular attention to what's essential at a granular level, Right? And what I mean by that is the spiritual transformation for me, and perhaps your experience is similar, that's promised as the result of working the 12 steps, that, that, that spiritual transformation, that rebirth, does not come by some sort of solving a mathematical equation, if you will. It, it isn't a step-by-step -step algebraic equation. Now, it's sequential. The steps are sequential. But, but it, it, it's not a, a, a complex sort of thing. If it were, then anyone 
who is skilled at problem solving or assembling a puzzle, you know, they would quickly gain access to God's power and they don't. You know, sorry, it doesn't work that way. This is about ego deflation, not ego inflation. And that's, that's the thing here. And, and if you really think about it, and I've given some thought about that, why would someone who approaches the steps as a means to some selfish end, however good their intentions are, why would rebirth come from sort of dotting your I's and crossing your T's? That would be an absurdity. That would be preposterous. That never worked for me. Going through the motions didn't work. Now, I don't know what your um, experience is, but I can, I can certainly tell you about mine. I am a compulsive overeater of the hopeless variety. And like me, you know, um, see, when I arrived here, there were kind of two doors, if you will. And allow me to use this kind of uh, metaphor. Behind door number one was, was disease. It was marked disease behind door number one. And, and, and there was this, this, this big burly guy, you know, with boxing gloves on behind door number one. And when you open that door and entered, he'd punch you right in the nose and, and just knock you down. Now, behind door number two, we'll call that door recovery. When you open that door, all you see in the distance is a, is, is a beautiful bridge to freedom. It's, it's, it's a ways away, but it's, you can see this beautiful bridge to freedom. There's no guy with, a, with the boxing gloves on, and that's the door marked recovery. Now, for most people, many people, they, they may choose door number one at first, and they, they get punched out, and immediately they, <laughs> they've learned their lesson. They head over to door number two, and it, it, and it tends to work out. Not me. See, there's, if, you, if you ever get a good look at me, you'll see that my nose is crooked. There's a reason. Boy, did I enter door one, door number one again and again. And, and when I get punched in the nose, see, I, I'm not a quitter. <laughs> I, you know, a few minutes later, I'm going to try again. And maybe this time it'll be different, and yet I get the same result. And, but I am a uh, prideful, determined guy. And every day, in fact, I show up at door number one and, Nothing changes. And then I get this notion. One day before approaching door number one, here's what I do. I get down on my knees, and I pray that that big burly guy with the boxing gloves won't be there when I enter that door, right? And see, I've got persistence and courage, and I'm in a prayerful mood. And I open that door, shielding my face, and guess what? Holy smokes, he's not there. So, I go looking for him. <laughs> I go looking for him. I enter in there and I walk through the hallways and I go, I go I'm going to find this guy uh, who then punches me out again. See, they have a name for this phenomena. It's called insanity. It's called insanity. And see, this is what I did in my early uh, OA days, really, because now I was mostly abstinent. I was mostly going to meetings. I was, I was kind of engaged in the steps. I was more honest than I had ever been, in a way, ever been in my life, but I was not rigorously honest. 
Now, I didn't lie to my sponsors directly. I merely lied through omission. I lied through omission. And when I was occasionally picking up my, you know, my binge foods, uh, you know, uh, uh, leading to a, a bigger binge, I was committed to something we call delayed honesty. <laughs> maybe, maybe you've been there, this delayed honesty. Some of you might, might know this concept of delayed honesty. It's where we continue to eat our alcoholic foods at certain times, perhaps while we're working the steps. And then eventually I want to spill the beans to my sponsor after the fact, maybe a week later, maybe two weeks later. Of course, they probably knew all the time. More as an exercise of unburdening myself because of the shame, the buildup of shame and remorse. You know, we talk about the buildup of normal human emotion. Oh, boy, that shame and remorse builds up. And, and, and that begins to fuel my misery. And for me, this was repeated over and over again in OA trying to work what I thought was the program. And I wasn't following the 12-step process with rigorous honesty and integrity. Yet in my selfishness, I, I, I expect it to be reborn. I expect it to be you know, reborn, to be regenerated, which for me was, it was just another way of expecting neutrality with the food to be magically kind of like foisted upon me, you know, upon me like, like rained on by some spiritual pixie dust. I was waiting for my time. After all, I had five years time served. I had a few coins in my, in my belt. I could, I could memorize the, you know, different chapter and verse as I was, you know, picking poppy seeds out of my hair and frosting in my hair and all that good stuff, right? Expect, I, I was expecting something. And meanwhile, I hadn't learned enough about surrender or selflessness and powerlessness in the face of this spiritual malady. malady. I didn't even really see it as a spiritual malady. What's that? I had a fat body. I couldn't stop eating. What's this all about a spiritual malady as the core of that? Just didn't, didn't connect the dots. And so we thrash around in the quicksand. We keep opening up door number one, as I did again and again. See, the idea of the steps is to produce a, a sufficient crisis situation. That's what we need. We need a crisis situation in our lives that serves as the catalyst to rigorously honestly, with willingness, you know, to sort of burn the bridge of self-contempt. And, and, and that crisis will act as a springboard to willingness. And that's where, where you hear people say the disease will do the convincing. Maybe some people die before the disease does the convincing. This disease is permanent. It's progressive. It gets worse, never better. And above all else, it's fatal. It's fatal. Anyone that's been around knows someone who has died of this disease. So, so again, the idea of the steps is to produce this crisis situation, but how do you raise the floor here, you know, uh, again, trying to, to effectuate your own change here? Well, here's some of my story. I, I really didn't. I had been in OA for nearly five years at, the, at this point that I want to tell you about, and I'm going to tell you about one of the there were many crises, but, but one of them. You know, as a psychologist, I, I, I worked at that time in a clinical setting, and I, I split my time between private practice and, and teaching at a, a local university in the Chicago area. 
<clears throat> no, I was divorced, <clears throat> and and I was still binging at times. I, I certainly had trouble with relationships in my life. And um, at that time, I generally was referred uh, troubled youth, um, mostly young men between the ages of, well, I'm saying boys too, between the ages of, say, 15 and 22, 23. That was kind of the population that I was working with. And then I would teach usually uh, afternoons, evenings. And one day I received a call from a high school psychologist. <clears throat> this is where, you know, they, they knew me. Some in my area knew me as, as working with these people, connecting with these people as best I could. And <clears throat> she had asked to refer to me Andy. Andy was a senior in high school. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Andy was a, was a very troubled uh, young man, there was a horrible home life, drugs, a uh, single mother who was an alcoholic, a father who was out of the picture for many years, um, had an abusive stepfather, I can relate to that. He, he, was a, he showed up, he was a shy kid, a slight build, very artistic. Uh, he would draw pictures and do all these things. He was depressed, no question. He had a girlfriend he told me about. Uh, whose parents, of course, didn't approve of being with Andy. Um, he, he cut school a lot. But we seemed to be making progress. And, and one evening, after about five or six sessions, um, Andy sent me a text. I still have the text. This is many years ago. It said very simply, uh, I think I'm going to kill myself. And naturally, as a psychologist, you know, takes that very seriously. And I, I contacted his mother, arranged, uh, requested that she take him immediately to the emergency room. And, of course, that sets in motion a, a thorough psychiatric evaluation. And it's all about safety of, of him at that point. And, and then I, of course, be in contact with the attending uh, uh, doctor on staff and um, and, and then Andy was immediately placed in, a, in, a, in the psychiatric wing of the hospital for a time, and, and then later, at the appropriate time, um, an inpatient environment. And, and, you know, here's the good news. He slowly got better. And about three weeks later, you know, when you get out of that, you, you know, you have to arrange for a session with your, your therapist, and he did, and, and, he, and he was doing terrific. He talked about what they had accomplished in the inpatient clinic we unpacked a lot of that he he had found a job he was at his girlfriend he was back in school for a senior year and a couple of weeks later um, I had spoken at an OA meeting and that evening my daughter um, she she had a, a sleepover with friends at my home she was very you know pretty young and they wanted to go to a drive-in movie <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> of course I said great you know we we did. We, 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 we packed up my truck at the time and, and took these girls uh, to, a, to a drive-in movie. And, and then we got back and the girls went to bed and so did I. And I'm, I'm quite certain I probably binged on something that night, as I recall. And I'm an early riser. At about 5 a.m. I woke up and uh, looked at my phone and I had 58 messages from a number that I didn't immediately recognize. 58 messages. And when I listened to the first one, I knew it was Andy's mother. She was frantic. She was inconsolable. See, Andy had killed himself at 2 a.m. that morning. 
no text this time, no, no indication. Everything seemed to be improving. See, sometimes life is unexplainable. There's so much outside of our control. And I tell you this story because I believe that horrible, tragic, heart-wrenching circumstances, terrible indeed, serve, serve, can serve as a crisis. It was a, it, it was a catalyst moment among many for me. Uh, I didn't see it at the time. It was a horrible time, but um, it was part of a, a transcendence from hopelessness to hope because my life was a mess even during that time. You know, there's, there's four absolutes. The four absolutes, honesty, unselfishness, love, and purity. Honesty, unselfishness, love, and purity. And those four absolutes were part of the Oxford group movement, and uh, that was really at the core. So we've, we've, uh, we've made things very complex, and the message has become watered down over time. You know, there's the, the early Oxford group, groupers, they had six steps. Number one, it was complete deflation. And number two was dependence on a higher power. Three was moral inventory. Four was a confession. A confession and five was restitution. And six was complete reliance upon God. So complete deflation, dependence on a higher power, moral inventory, confession, restitution, complete reliance on God. See, these were the core aspects of a program leading towards rebirth. But only those in crisis would, would really navigate through that. And we hear, you know, what, what, what is it that will impede a spiritual rebirth of sorts? I know for me, this resonates for me. What, what, what gets in the way? What's the barrier from having this? You've been at this for years you're frustrated. You cannot stay stopped. Your life is unmanageable. What is the barrier? Pretty simple. It comes down to a resentment that we won't let go of, a secret we will not tell, a vicarious thrill we will not stop, and a restitution we will not make. A resentment we won't let go of. We'll hold on to that. I a secret we will not tell. There was, I was taking a fifth step uh, yesterday and a gentleman who had been in AA for many years and he shared something with me, um, shared something with me that he had never shared with, with someone else. Too much shame, too much, too much remorse. He was going to take that one to his grave. Yet he had been sober from alcohol for many years. You know, if only a recovered person, I, 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 he's not getting well because of me. It'll be because of God. But only a recovered person who has also kept secrets, a secret we will not tell, right? Only that person, when you finish the fifth step, will say, before approaching the sixth, will not only read perhaps what the text tells us to do, but through their experience, they will know to say, you know, at this point, there was before I can be entirely ready for God to remove all my defects of character, I have to take a look at, you know, at the first five steps, the first five proposals. Am I holding on to anything? And then I tell them 
about the very specific things that I, were, that I was holding on to, all the while wondering why I'm not becoming reborn, why I'm not, I never saw the connection. And by telling him that and telling him it very specifically through my experience, do you know what? I didn't say, hey, now, with that, start spilling. No, I didn't say that. I, I thought he, he was pretty thorough in what he just gave away. But before he, and I, I usually tell people, you know, when you meditate on this for about an hour, you're building a foundation, a firm foundation in which to become a free man, a free woman. You know, we go through this process and, I, and we read that text. And, but I tell him, you know, about this, that what, what I wasn't willing to do. And I said, well, and after you do that, you know, if anything comes to mind, like I just shared with you, that I wasn't willing to tell you, you know, consider, consider uh, telling me about that. We didn't even have to hang up. He, he began to spill things. And see, what's beautiful about that is, see, see God, God, God created him, just as he created me, just as he created you. This higher power of my own understanding knows what's in our heart and in our mind. We're not keeping it a secret from anyone. God's not a moving target. We are. And without that complete transparency, there's, there's really no full access to the power. How do I know that? I know that because I experienced that. I experienced the transcendence once I got rigorously honest. And the big book gives, tells us again and again and again what will happen. We will drink again, right? So a secret we will not tell, vicarious thrill we will not, we will not stop, a restitution we will not make. But I needed a crisis, um, and, and that's what happened. And, and at this point, I want to visit the three pertinent ideas uh, found on page uh, 60 in the, in the big book, right? I want to I visit those, take a look at those, because I think those are, are critical things that we need, we need to take a look at because we read those and it becomes almost rote, right? It becomes, I'm, I'm grabbing my big book, going upstairs, now we're all in my room. Oh, there's my big book. And it is big, it's big print. It is big print. I can't see this stuff, but, but on page 60, it's so critical that we understand. And so I, I want to go through these three pertinent ideas on page 60 because I just think that in my experience, it was just so important to internalize this stuff. So on page 60, um, you know, um, down to the second full paragraph, our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, the description of the alcoholic we got uh, in the in the early chapters uh, we got that in you know certainly more about alcoholism and we got that in, in there is a solution and we learned in Bill's story and even in the doctor's opinion that was the foundation of understanding are we do we have this thing and if we do what do we do about it well the chapter to the agnostic begins to tell us about access to power we begin to revisit or not revisit we begin to take a look at step two and then our personal adventures you know their experiences before and after this stuff make clear three pertinent ideas the first one is that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives now now wait a minute i i i've spent years before i ever came to oa and i 
I accomplished things and I, I studied and I, I immersed myself in synthetic knowledge in the world of psychology and I earned a PhD and, and, um, and that was just, just great, you know, to be able to do that. So now you're telling me my life is unmanageable. Hey, people get divorced, but I have a roof over my head. I have good job prospects. Yes, I'm heavy, but isn't there a lot of people? What, what is this unmanageability aspect? I could accept that I had this alcoholic mind. I had both the allergy of the body and this, whatever you call this, mental twist. So that once I picked up the food, I was often running, triggering the phenomenon of craving. But even, even when I wasn't eating the food, I was led back through the mental twist. And that cycle was repeated over and over. Okay, I could accept that. But unmanageability... I really had to dig deep. And then when we can accept that, B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And the, and the reality is, is that Bill did not want the word probably in there. But of course, they, they had a consensus. You know, they passed out the, 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 the uh, you know, the, the, the writing thus far. And when they got to this point, uh, there were some people that challenged him on that. that and, and so they said probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism and Bill, you know, conceded and he left in the word probably. And when I read that, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism, I thought to myself, so you're telling me there's a chance. You're telling me there's a chance. Maybe there is a, there is a human power that could, and I kept searching for that human power. I, I searched in, in all sorts of places. I searched in the libraries. I searched at Barnes & Noble. I searched among speakers uh, of different types, other professors. When I came to OA, I searched for what I thought were the very best sponsors in the thin bodies with the intellect that I, that I wanted. It was all about me. And I thought there was a chance. I just had to, that was what it was. I was certain of it. I was certain that I just had not met that person that could turn a phrase, that could motivate me, that could give me the right information to bring about a complete spiritual transformation. And so I kept searching and I kept, kept you know, going up to door number one <laughs> again and again, searching. There is, no, there is no power. There's not a sponsor. You are a human power. Your sponsor is a human power. Any wise person that is currently living or dead is a human power, and none of them have the capacity or the power to relieve you of your alcoholism. And until we fully embrace that and have a sense of knowing, we will continue to look for that human power. And then it goes on to see that it says that God could and would if he were sought. And I misinterpreted this. Because remember, I was the guy that got down on my knees just to pray. And I meant it. And I was earnest in my prayer. And then I, am, then I walked up to door number one, disease, again and again. How do we, what do they mean by that? It's so simple that God could and would if he were sought. It's so simple. What they mean by that is, in the context of this program, how are you going to seek God? The God of my, I don't understand who God is. It's the God of 
certainly of my misunderstanding. How I'm going to seek that God is, is a real simple thing by working the steps. Then it will begin to unfold. And for people that come here, I don't care if they're agnostic, atheist, or how about they have a very you know, a healthy uh, 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 spiritual life. They have certain rituals that they perform all with meaning and purpose. And they come here with this malady and they think I'm good. I'm good there. There, there there's, it's not necessary. You know, that God could and would have ever sought. I've been seeking him since I was a child. And yet I have mentioned before that I do, I do personally know of rabbis, priests, and other religious people that, that this was their living. This is, what, this is what they did for their profession and had spiritual lives, lives, and they were unfortunately compulsive overeaters or alcoholics. And the one common thing with the ones that I'm thinking of is they're dead and they're never coming back. And maybe, just maybe, when this was read, that God could and would, if he were sought, they thought they were good. No, this is much simpler than that. We are going to seek God through working these steps, following the instructions precisely. And when we do, there's going to be an unfolding, perhaps a new unfolding, a new rebirth, that all ideas, emotions, and attitudes which once dominated us are going to be replaced by new conceptions, a new understanding. And it's going to happen not because you brought it about. That's the paradox. You're going to do the work, but, but actually God is going to initiate that change in you while you're doing the work. Once you've completed the process, it's going to unfold. And maybe the timing of it is a little bit different for all of us. And maybe our stories, our personal narratives are a little different. I was listening to Harlan's thing yesterday. He does such a wonderful job. Uh, I think the reason he does such a wonderful job, uh, I want to thank his higher power, uh, because, because out of bitter, bitter experience in this disease, talk about crises, and again and again, he would come up like I would to door number one and get punched out, and then the next day think he's going to come come up and get punched out again and eventually maybe pray, get down on his knees, do whatever, jump through a hoop, whatever your sponsor says, and he shows up at door number one and the guy's not there and then he goes searching for him. And that's what we did. But it's from our bitter experience that we're able, you know, when someone's been reborn, internally restructured, you know it, you hear it, you feel it. There's something unique about it. And, the, and, and, and I think one of the biggest things with this rebirth is through good times and bad, because those will come. You know, the hold your ears, Leah. The shitstorm is either in your life right now or it's on its way, because that is life. So pick someone that you respect and admire. Guess what? The storm is in there. Like, hey, we all, there's a certain storm in all of our lives at, at this particular time with COVID and all that. So it's, on, it's in your life today or it's on its way. But so too is the ability to transcend that. And so what I see is a person who's been reborn, they, no matter what's going on in their lives, they lose a father, they show up. They still show up. 
they take care of what they need to. They grieve. Yes, they're, they, they're, they're still, they grieve, but they show up. Why do they show up? Because this, because program is not something that they do in their spare time when things are going well. They show up because they've been reborn and, and programmed is who they are. Now, they may, their time may be, they, they may not have the same amount of time in showing up because maybe they're taking care of family and all sorts of circumstances, but it's almost as though they have no choice but to show up. They just do it, and it's in some ways effortless because it is a part of them. I don't wake up and wonder, hmm, will I, will I brush my teeth today or won't I? I wonder how I feel. Let's, let me take my emotional temperature and see, see how I feel, and then I'll get back to you. Like, it just happens. When I drive the car, when you get in your car, I don't get in there as I did this morning and think about, okay, is my, are my hands positioned correctly? Let me check and see, okay, is it the right foot for the gas? Do I use the left foot for the brake? No, 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 right foot for both the gas and the brake. Okay, how do I put this again? I don't think the way I did when I was 15 and learning how to drive. It just comes naturally because you've been doing it so long you don't think about it. And when you're reborn as the result of these steps, you don't think about it anymore. You don't have to think and sort of, uh, but understood when you're new in program or if you've been in program forever and you still, it's a struggle every day and program is something you do in your spare time and you don't feel that sense of rebirth, you're not a bad person for that because of that. You're just like me. You're a person that just did not experience the transformation as the result of the steps because maybe something was missing in doing the process or maybe you were doing it as I was, crossing T's, dotting I's, going through the motions, not expecting change, just seeking an outcome for you, relief. And as long as I pursued it in that way, unless I was blessed with a crisis that would, would enable me to, to change the manner in which I'm doing it, I will continue to enter through door number one, Mark disease. Door number two, I love when Leah says, of course, we all steal stuff from everyone else. But she may have came up with this because usually she's got some good stuff that resonates with me. And she says something to the effect that, you know, door number one is, you know, where, where there's that bridge to freedom through, through work and self-sacrifice for others and the work in these steps. Door number one, as we, file, as we get in single file line, that's, there's, there's not too many people in that line excuse me, the door, door number two, the one, the one with, um, the, one with the, the bridge to freedom. Door number one, oh, that line is wrapped around the building many, many times. That's a long line of people that each day um, are practicing the disease. However well-intentioned they are, these are good people. It's not a moral or value judgment. And then she says, and you know who makes the determination as to which line you get into? Now, she says a lot better than that. She says, you do. You make the determination. You decide which line you get into. 
doesn't matter how long you've been in program. At some point, you can get in the much shorter line. Of course, that's going to take sacrifice. And maybe it's going to take a crisis for you to get in the line. You know, some people have to be hospitalized, psychiatric or otherwise. Some people have to go through horrible, horrible, beaten down into a state of reasonableness. And when they are, then they, then they get in that line and they are reborn. And I was telling someone, I'll wrap up uh, uh, in this way. I was telling someone the other day that to use a metaphor that I read recently, so, uh, you know, the human mind is such that the human mind is like the human tongue in this sense, in this sense. The human tongue, you know, we, we naturally move our tongue around in our mouth and we feel around, you know, for what do we feel around for? For the cavity, for the, pain, the painful tooth. That's what we, we, we detect that. We are, we are, we are uh, wired as human beings to detect pain, Right? Conversely, you don't move your tongue around naturally, organically, and notice the molar that's just fine. It's great. It does, I don't feel any pain at all. And say, oh, my gosh, another day of gratitude that I am feeling this, this number whatever molar, and it is just fine. It's perfect. No, we find the thing that's painful, right? And, and, and so in the same way, even with COVID and all these things or, or whatever's going on in your life, we are wired to naturally detect what we're lacking, what's painful. And we, we are, have the utter inability sometimes to, to examine and explore what's working well. It's almost like just getting up to zero, you know, zero, just getting up to that point where we, where we see, okay, everything's, reasonably good. So our minds are wired in that way. And when we, what, and when we approach program, we are very focused. Yes, we get, get to the point of understanding our powerlessness. We get to the point where we're examining resentments and fears and sex conduct and all these things. And that is the point at which, for many of us, that's very painful to look at. And so we look for something to numb that out. And then we pick up food. And then what do we detect? Remorse, shame, and so forth. And if we could just work through the steps quickly and find entire abstinence and work the steps with integrity, then we proceed. And actually, then we will get what's promised. We will get neutrality, but that'll be the least of what we get. We're going to get spiritual transformation where this just comes more naturally. It, it comes more organically, this way of life. So that's been my experience with this. The rebirth for me has been transformational. It is not per perfect. It is ever evolving. But to tell you that uh, today I can have relationships, sustainable relationships, sustainable friendships, that people actually, not everyone, but lots and lots of people in program and outside of program actually look to me as someone, you know, that they, that they, would, that they would contact to ask advice or, 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 or just want to befriend. What a beautiful thing. That nobody was looking for me. I, trust me. I swear, nobody was looking for Larry. 
because when you found Larry, you never knew what you were going to find. Were you going to find the angry, irritable Larry that would, uh, you know, that would uh, detach emotionally from you? Or would you find that sweet, you know, person who's, who's there? You never knew what you were going to get, so you really didn't trust. Today, it's so much different. I, I can't tell you the gratitude that I have for this program and the beautiful people in this fellowship, these teachers, most of them women, that have taught me uh, a way of life that is better than any that I've ever known. And here's the, here's the, the kicker. My daughter, she doesn't remember that guy. She was so young. She doesn't remember, you know, the person that was restless, irritable, discontent. She doesn't remember the person that was emotionally abusive to her mother. You know, she doesn't know that guy. And that, that, that's a gift that I did not deserve. I'm grateful that this was a God of mercy and grace. This was unearned and not a God of justice because if this was a God of justice, I don't think that I'd be on the line. So anyway, with that, Leah, I will pass and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much, Larry, for this important and profound presentation this morning. Thank you very much for sharing your personal insights and experience with all of us. Today's share ID 14,423. That's 14423. Larry's contact information will be offered at the conclusion of the recording, so stay tuned for that. We will now transition to question and answer segment. You can pose a question by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Loretta H. Irene Linda R. Is that Loretta H? Thank you. Mm -hmm. Linda R. Thank you. Irene? Yes, Irene B, Linda R, Sandy V, Elena C. Sandy, is that Sandy C? Sandy V is in Victor. V is in Victor. All right. Elena C. Elena C. Surrey C. Terry C. Surrey C. Surrey C. Excellent. Okay, let's start with this group. We have Loretta H., Irene B., Linda R., Sandy V., Elena C., and Suri C. So let's get started. Everybody, please mute except for Loretta H. Questions only. Thank you. Loretta H. I'm sorry. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Larry, for this awesome, just heartfelt um, qualification. My question is, how do you practice your daily reconstruction? You know, like, what does it look like um, for just for my, um, you know, for helping me looking at mine? So that's my question. Sure. Uh, thank you, Loretta, for the question. So how do I practice my daily – what are my daily practices um, as part of this reconstruction? 
you know, um, so uh, you know, first let me say I didn't reconstruct myself. That that much I oh, had to. I had to. Yeah, yeah. That that's the first part of it. There's the daily reconstruction is just leaning into God. Now there's very you know, the big book gives us some very specific ways in which to do that. Uh, in, in particular, in steps 10, 11, and 12. Um, and it, so it's given me a set of skills, spiritual in nature, that I practice. And I know there's different variations in the way and the timing and so forth that people do it. But, you know, just to simplify it, um, I, it is incumbent upon me to continue to take my personal inventory. Uh, and I do that. I, do, I follow the 10-step instructions I will tell you that um, it's it's pretty rare for me when things come up. It's not it's not that minor irritations that dissipate pretty quickly come up. That's just a part of life. I don't necessarily subject them to uh, to the tenth step. Those minor irritations, which actually over time I realize have uh, are most of them. Um, but there are things that stick to me like Velcro. They, uh, they rent space in my head. They stick with me. And, and then, first and foremost, I am going to subject those to the, the, the instructions in the 10th step. Now, there's different things. You know, some people do kind of the 10th step is often referred as a mini four through nine process, really. Um, but, but, again, you know, on, on, on page, uh, I believe it's 85, it tells us and, and, uh, that I'm, I'm going to ask God to remove this. I do it without any expectation of the timing of God removing it. But I do ask, the big book, I follow the instructions precisely. It tells me to discuss it with another understanding person. I don't commiserate. Um, I just, it's more to get it out of my head so that I don't live in that secret self-pitying world. It tells me to make amends uh, quickly if I've harmed anyone as a result of that. And then it tells me to resolutely turn my thoughts to someone else I can help. That's not too difficult for me. I've chosen to put myself out there. A vision is such a, a wonderful thing, but there's been so many, such a privilege. There's been so many, um, I, I have so many people that uh, just show up. I don't have to necessarily go searching. So, so meaning, you know, to turn my thoughts to someone else I can help in program or outside of program is, is really not a difficult thing at all. I would, I would suggest, I would empower, if you will, anyone to begin to make this a daily practice of putting yourself out there to carry the message. Um, we could do that in so many different ways, and then you won't have to search for those people because that's the one that most people miss is uh, turning their thoughts to someone else they can help because when you're in the midst of your own troubles, the last thing that intuitively comes to mind is to think about anyone else except your own problem. But that is, my mind has been shaped through this tool that I immediately think when I'm in the midst of a trouble that is tethered to my brain, tethered to my heart, it's weird, but it is true because it comes with practice. My, my first thing that just naturally happens is I turn my thoughts away from myself and towards someone else that I can help. And um, so I do that. And then my practice, of course, my 11-step practice pretty much follows the instructions in the big book. Um, and I won't go into all the details now, but you know where to find those specific instructions. They're not hidden. And I do those things. And I've even done a special edition, I think, on what that looks like for me. 
with prayer and meditation. And throughout the day, uh, I check in with God uh, for, that, for that connection. And then, again, the 12th step is, do I, the 12th step, uh, the whole chapter working with others, do I, do I work uh, intensely with individuals on holding that lantern, as Leah says, and, um, you know, because I can shed light on the steps as someone who's been brought through that process, I do. Um, I don't work intensely with tons and tons of people. I'm not a martyr who's trying to, you know, to put my, I, I, I give what time I have. I have balance in my life, but I will tell you that I carry the message 365 days a year because every, every day, whether I'm formally sponsoring someone in that type of intense work that we need to do, or I am just speaking to people every day, might have questions, or we might be, we're really sharing with each other. I'm no guru. I'm, I'm a bite away, right? But we're, we're, we're sharing partners in a sense. Um, and, and so I do that on a daily basis, and, and that's not difficult to do. In fact, that's a joy. That's a love in doing that. So I hope that helps a bit, Loretta, and uh, I hope so. Thanks, Loretta, for your question. Irene B., your turn. Good morning. Thank you so much for your continued and beautiful service always so inspiring, so nurturing, so comforting. And I need much comfort, so hearing your voice gives me a feeling of love and peace, which is what I need to feel, and for that I'm very grateful. Um, I, I know that we are supposed to sacrifice to help others, and I have a problem with that because my role in life was to serve others and I did not matter. And um, But I find that in working with others, it gives me the greatest pleasure. I love nothing more than working with sponsors because I love them with all of my heart and it gives me such joy to experience their victories. So I just wanted, you know, I assume that Sacrifice in helping others, uh, it's a very daunting concept for me, but I think that maybe I need to let go of my preconceived notions, and I just wanted to know what that means for you, And, and, and to see if I'm doing something wrong that I need to improve on so that I can be more effective. I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. It does, Irene. Thanks for the question on that. You know, we all, we all, um, we all get here um, at different places. I'm hearing a little bit of feedback there, Leah. I don't know if that's me or, or what, but maybe that's going away. I think it's going away. Okay. So, Irene, it's a great question. You know, what I'm reminded of uh, on page 97 in the chapter Working with Others, first full paragraph, um, I can't avoid these responsibilities, but I have to, you know, I have to be sure that I'm doing the right thing if I assume them. And then it gives me a statement. Helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. It is the foundation stone of my rebirth. So a kindly act once in a while isn't going to be enough. I have to act the good Samaritan every day if need be. And it's, it's not always convenient to do that, right? 
especially if we're suffering, you know, at this time, people are sheltered. They get, you know, you're, you're, you're maybe, uh, you don't have a lot of separation from a, maybe a larger family or different people. There's different personalities, all the sorts of things. So how, so at that time, you would think that, you know, maybe we'll put a little pause on helping others as a foundation stone, right? No, it's still the foundation stone of my continued rebirth of the evolving, progressive nature, the unfolding of the spiritual awakening. So, so for me, it's just, pra- it's like everything else, Irene. It's just practice, practice, more practice. I'm in practice. I'm a better psychologist today than I was when I practiced it uh, 20 years ago, some days. But I, I need more practice. I just know God has, has you know, has more plans. to, to So I got, I got to practice. And that's what this is. But I don't, I don't practice this with anxiety and fears and trepidation. When those things crop up, I... I face them with courage. Courage doesn't mean devoid of fear. Courage means that sometimes I got to feel the fear and do it anyway with integrity. And, and, and what I would say is as I've practiced that and I learned from these giants, even on the line, there's some giants, uh, giant, giant um, uh, people with beautiful recovery that I learned from. And I watched them. I watched them. I listened to them. Um, I see that they practice this too. Um, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna pick on Leia because she's been such an inspiration to me. She's probably cringing, but I'm just guessing that that 30 years ago she she was a different person than <laughs> she is today, right? Uh, Harlan's another one. Uh, I, I'm guessing 30, 40 years ago he was a different guy. Uh, I know that I was a different guy. They, they. I bet. I bet you anything they're still practicing, trying to get better, uh, but they do it without. You know, when things crop up with courage, I'm guessing, I just learn from those people. So, Irene, um, the last I'll say is, is you're, getting, you're getting well. By the grace of God, you're getting well. He's changing you. He's giving you a new perceptive lens in which to see the world. And what a beautiful, miraculous thing that is because you're going to be able to help people like no other. And it's going to come from not from all the good things that happen. Your very assets are going to be the, you know, trudging through those challenges and seeing that with God's help, you can transcend them through these steps, right? So, boy, there's going to be some lucky people that will cross your path because, your path because you're going to be able to show true humility and love and compassion and acceptance of yourself as much as you accept them. So I hope that helps, Irene. Thanks for the question. Thank you, Irene, for Thank your you question. So much. Linda R., your turn. Star 1 to unmute, please. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, everyone who's on the line, and Larry, for your very educational and transformational talk today. I really got a lot out of it, and I thank you so much for all the service you do on the line and for your levity. I always love your sense of humor. Anyway, my question for today is the word omission. You mentioned the word omission. I know when my sponsees do a fearless and moral inventory of themselves, sometimes when they get to the fear inventory they omit consciously and they and they sometimes i really don't know why um after the fact sometimes we discuss it uh, i find out sometimes or i don't find out but my question is do you believe that even though someone might have omission in their inventory and in their program as long as they tell someone else like i had a few experiences where the person might not have felt comfortable doing a fifth step with me or 
telling me something that might be in their minds. Do you believe that omission is still okay if they continue to tell someone else or if they progress in their program? Or do you believe that sometimes people need to redo their steps because for some reason they're just not ready to divulge certain information? You know, if they're as sick as their secrets, as we say. So that's my question. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Linda. Thanks for the question. Yeah, yeah. to the point of omission, you know, this is really the transformation, the rebirth is, is really, I believe anyway, is, is all up to God, God's timing. God's, now, we, we work the steps quickly, hopefully, because we want to experience that transformation. But I think there, as I've heard it said on the lines, there, there is a timing to this uh, for people. Um, and, but, but speaking specifically to my mention of omission, um, I, I guess it has to do with the motives. Uh, let me give you an example, see if this helps. Um, I, I generally shared things. Uh, I shared, even before OA, I shared a little bit with you, Linda. Then I shared a little bit with Leah. I shared a little bit with this one. I shared a little bit with that one. Maybe a therapist, I shared a little, something really shameful. But just no one person ever had the complete story. And there's something divine about the fifth step that suggests, uh, I, don't, I don't think it's by happenstance that this divinely inspired uh, program of action, and speaking of the fifth step, was that we are divulging with God, ourselves, and one other human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Now, if we're not ready to do that, then we're not ready. And, and this isn't about, um, <clears throat> you know, catching people doing something wrong. Thank goodness you guys didn't kick me out. Uh, maybe you knew or maybe you didn't know that he must be holding on to something. I don't know if, <clears throat> if one of my nine sponsors in the first five years, if they had any insight about that. Perhaps they did. But I think my motives in some cases were, Linda, if you knew that I had st stolen that money. Linda, if you knew that I had... Um, abused my authority as a professor by having a relationship with a, a former student. If you knew that, oh, that levity that you like, Linda, just washed out, gone, in my mind. You know, if you knew certain things, see, these are my greatest assets to share these things with no fear, none of that, because I'm not that person anymore. And how ironic, how ironic is it that freedom, of course, is not free. There's a lot of things that we have to do, starting with putting the food down, which isn't a step, <clears throat> entire abstinence. How about, you know, putting down a vicarious thrill? Oh, Linda, it's thrilling when you have uh, young students, younger than me, <clears throat> you know, that show an interest in me, you know, and oh, how exhilarating that is. You know, and, and I don't want you to know that. Until one day, crisis being what it is, seeing that I wasn't getting well, I had to share the whole ball of wax with one person God already knew and myself. And I had to pay that price because one of the prices is to drop the false pride that I was carrying and to face my fears of rejection Face, it's a horrible fear that we have that permeates our soul of rejection 
if you knew these things about me, Linda, I'm glad you're the only one on the line that I didn't have to share that with a bunch of people. I'm glad you're the one that knows about that because I know you'll, you know, hold that in confidence. But, but you know what I mean? There's, there's things that we just, there's, the freedom comes from the unmasking, Linda, right? And so when we're working with, I think the best way to do it is rather than, than um, I tell my story. I just presume they're probably sick like me and that they may be holding on to some things. I don't know. And then rather than say, hey, if you're holding on to something, Linda, just know you'll probably drink again. It's right there in the big book. No, I say, Linda, this is what I did. I held on to some things. Let me tell you specifically what I held on to. And then when I was ready, I gave it away and it made all the difference. It made all the difference. I was, I was a little bit more free on my road to this rebirth. You know, so there's, 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 there's nobody, there's someone that knows everything about me today, all the imperfections. So I hope that helps a bit. With that, I will pass. Thank you, yes, Linda. Yes, Larry, R. thanks so much. Thank you, Linda. Sure. Sandy V, star one to unmute. Thank you so much, Leah. Can you hear me okay? Hear you very well. Thank you. And thank you, Larry. I was touched so deeply by what you shared. And it gives me hope, and I'm on the 11th step now, and I'm looking forward to working with others, and you've given me an entirely different, um, like a different dimension as far as the kind of sponsor that I want to be. So I want to say thank you. And I have a specific question about working the 10th step. Do you um, call a bunch of different people to give you a tenth step? Is it between you and God, or is it with your sponsor? I hear many different ways. So, what do you do? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words. Um, you know, it really depends. But I'll tell you just generally what I do. So, on page eighty-four, that's the page. <clears throat> Harlan was probably I mentioned eighty-five. I get it mixed up. Um, so it, it, it tells us, you know, that when we approach step 10, uh, you know, that we, for a lifetime, we're going to continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear when these crop up, because they will, even in this recovered state of being at this point, if I follow the steps, um, these are going to crop up. We ask God at once to remove them, and then we discuss them with someone immediately, make amends, uh, resolutely turn our thoughts to someone else we can help. You're asking about... Uh, discussing them with someone else. Sometimes it's my sponsor, um, but but here, here's the thing. Um, I think a couple of things in, in my experience with step ten. One, as as we continue to get well, right? Recover, being in a recovered state is not. It, it's just a, it's the starting point, really, of having that spiritual transformation. And there's so many beautiful things that happen over the years, uh, day by day. So to your point, I think sometimes early on, I had lots of 10 steps. I, I had a misunderstanding that, that any irritation, which I certainly had many early on, you know, I'm going to be spending all day long calling people all day long. And I, and I got to get through to someone uh, uh, to discuss it because I had my notion was we need to discuss this. In other words, we needed to commiserate. We needed I needed to get advice. 
I need all these misnomers. Really, I believe in, in my understanding of the book and these instructions is that aspect of telling someone is to get out of the secret world, right? Now, now, if that works for someone where they're leaving a message for someone, right, I think that's more than appropriate. Now, other times, for those years saying, blasphemy, young man, I'm not so young anymore, blasphemy, no, you need to discuss this, you need to get a hold of someone. And I would say sometimes I do. But, but if the main purpose is to get out of my secret world, get out of the world of self-pity, this person cut me off in traffic, this coworker, my boss asked me to do something that's outside my job description, my, my, my partner, uh, she, you know, she did this and that and the other thing. And it's really renting space in my head. I just need to remember that if I'm, if the purpose is to move from self-centeredness, self-absorption, Sandy, to other absorption, what good would it do to discuss it with someone and end up this being uh, like a therapy session of commiserating and, and getting, you know, getting someone to identify with that and, and, uh, and, and connect with me and make me feel better? That, you know, that, that it's justified, this resentment, this anger, this fear is justified. Then, then I get off the phone and I'm still in the same place. That's not the purpose of that aspect of step 10. No, it's to, just to get rid of it. Now, I also want to say another thing about that. When I get rid of it, my level of acceptance now is to say that I don't have an expectation that just by getting it out of my head, I'm going to feel better. And if you were to take my emotional temperature, it would be back to 98 degrees or whatever it is. I don't have that expectation. I may still be upset. I may still. But if I follow these instructions, what I've seen is more and more over time as I practice this, those, that selfishness, that anger, that resentment, that fear, that self-absorption dissipates. It dissipates. And so over time, if you're doing this right, you'll have less of those. You'll have less 10 steps you need to do. The other thing I want to say is this is not a program of 10 steps. Can you imagine if this program was about, you know, getting your shin kicked, kicking someone else in the shin, and, and just calling people. That's what the program is. And then eating Oreos and Doritos to numb yourself out. And then as, as it happens again, call someone else. That is the biggest travesty, such an absurdity. And yet I see that. I observe that. Maybe you do too. That's not what this is. It's about quickly moving to transcendence when we get rid of this and we move on with our lives to be of service to other people. So I hope that helps. Thank you very much, Sandy B. Elena C., your turn, star one to unmute. Good morning, everyone. Um, good morning. Thank you, Leah, and thank you so much, Larry. And I just love your recovery, your words. They're so beautiful. And I just feel like they're coming from, from somewhere else, the higher power. And um, your gentleness uh, in expressing them, it's amazing. And I think that my question will kind of follow the, the previous question. So in order to do a 10 step and um, just turn your attention to other people, meaning means that you, you've got to 
you got to be pretty grounded in the community, in a community with which um, when you need to um, reach out for the 10 step, you have someone you can share and then you call someone else to be of help. Um, you turn your attention. Uh, I know it's also turning your thoughts as well. Um, but um, so that was my question. Like, I um, found it difficult at times because I don't have that many people to to call for 10 steps. And although I'm part of a group me, uh, and that's great. And in the group me, you know, like some people I don't know. So, and I mean, I receive good feedback, but it's just hard to like, you know, um, share of my inner secrets with strangers all the time. And um and so, so that's my question, like, speak about the community that you have. And also, I have one other question. Another question is, if you can speak about more, it's beautiful why you said the rebirth is transformation, the imperfect transformation ever evolving. So if you can speak about that. Thank you. Okay, so let's see if I can handle the first one uh, real quickly. Yes, I, I hear what you're saying about being grounded in a community, and, and as part of that, you know, we have a comfort level with people, and that's why um, it was asked about sharing with a sponsor. Hopefully, we're cultivating a relationship. Um, I do have a sponsor, but in some ways, I have many sharing partners. It just took time to cultivate that. Um, it, it took time. Uh, there are thousands of names on the list, and I understand it can be uh, overwhelming to think, particularly if you're like me, you, you, be, you might be surprised. I, I'm really more of an introvert, really and truly. I've, I've always been that way. I would test that way in any reasonable test. I'm more introverted. Um, yeah, I'm a big cut up on the, on the phone in my jammies, but, um, but, but I, I'm not one much for small talk. Um, not very good at that. Okay, so, so to speak about that, yeah, we have, to, we have to develop that community. And sometimes this program for me is all about having the courage to do some things that don't come natural for me. Again and again, we are asked to do things, to, be, to, to subject and immerse ourselves in things that we're not comfortable in doing. But over time, as I practiced that and developed um, and just put myself out there and talk to people, and even in some cases early on, sort of force myself, if you will, to talk to certain people, some of those relationships organically evolved. And so now there's, there's, there, there are people all around the world that I could call and speak with, and then we carry the message to each other and we can share specific things. But I know it's, it's a challenge there. And yes, you know, the thing is, I, 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 it's, it's not even necessary to um, usually perhaps we develop that relationship with a sponsor and, and, and maybe that's kind of a go-to person. But, you know, what if that sponsor isn't available? What if that sponsor, you know, unfortunately is back in the food? What if that sponsor dies? You know, th this is all about a big, larger um, community of, of people with a similar issues and so forth so there's there's ways of doing that and so i think that's that's important to just um to just immerse yourself in that and and just be open to you never know the divine nature of this there are people that i i didn't think just like it talks about in the big book that i that we would not have crossed paths and these are some of my dearest 
loveliest friends today. So you may be surprised. God may surprise you in that divine way. Now, speaking about rebirth, imperfect. Yeah, it's, I, I love the word imperfect because I will never be a perfect human being. But just as the disease of compulsive eating, this addiction, is permanent, it's progressive, it gets worse, never better, untreated, and it is fatal, I would say that the spiritual, the unfolding of the spiritual awakening, which is so many things that I didn't know that I did not know, I thought I knew what this would be. I tried to pick the best parts of what I heard from people, and I thought, well, that's nirvana. No, what it is really is, yes, there is neutrality with the food. Of course, there's that, and that's a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful thing. But there's so many, oh, the the friends I've made, Stealing Harlan's stuff as I steal all of his stuff. I pay him nothing other than friendship and gratitude. Um, oh, the people you will meet. <laughs> right? It's really true. I love how he says it. Oh, the people you will meet, the places you will go. Right? And, and oh, the spiritual rebirth, the transformation you will experience. It will, it will, it will probably surprise you. It will probably be nothing like you anticipated it to be. In many good ways, in other ways, you're going to be recalibrated to say, oh, that thing that I thought was going to be part of this. No, that was never intended to be part of this. I wasn't going to be wrapped in bubble wrap. Of course, there was going to be viruses and death and things. That's all part of life. But, oh, the serenity and the peace in the midst of those things, that I didn't bargain for. So I I, I hope that elaborates a little bit on it. But feel free to call me sometime if you'd like. I'll pass. Thank you, Elena. Cerise, your turn with a question. Hi, um, this is Cerise, compulsive overeater. Um, I guess my question to you is, uh, listening to what you shared, and I... Honestly, I joined the line in trepidation because I didn't know what I was going to find. All I just know is that I, 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 I'm an outgoing person. I'm an extrovert. I will share everything with everyone or anyone. But I'm embarrassed to share that I haven't spoken to my 11-year-old in almost two, over two weeks because they, they ran out of my house with my other two older children thinking that I hold them hostage. and over COVID and I I don't even, I'm in so much pain and, and one of my daughter called and she asked me, you know, what happened to this food of mine that I put aside? And when I had to admit that I ate it, she burst out crying because somebody else had given it to her and she doesn't know she's going to see that person again. And she doesn't know she's going to see me again, but they're not crying over seeing me and they're just in so much pain. I'm in so much pain. And I'm still asking myself, am I desperate enough? And I think that I am. But I'm just, I'm grateful that at one point you had said that, you know, when I said I wasn't abstinent, you had said that um, maybe you're just not desperate enough. And, you know, and and I've been trying to work these steps without being abstinent and it just doesn't go. So here I am. I've spoken to therapists to try to work this through and I don't. Sorry. I just yes, the question. Sorry, um, if you could please form a question for Larry at this yes. time. Thank you. Yes. Um the question is, how do I know if I'm desperate enough? 
Okay, Heidi, thanks, Suri. And yeah, I'm sorry you're, you're going through that. I, I know pain like that too. Uh, most of us do. Just We have just different narratives, you know, maybe slightly different narratives, different timing. Uh, but you're in pain. So how do you know? How, you know, another, perhaps, perhaps the, the, the better question um, in, in line with yours is what's, what is it going to take for you to elevate the floor? Right? What is it going to take for you to elevate the floor to where you are um, willing to trust in this process? So you talked about um, being an extrovert. You talked about trepidation. I know about the trepidation part. There's a fear of change. In the midst of my pain, what the hell? There's a payoff? The payoff for me, in a sense, is I'm scared out of my wits of change. What will I become? What's my life going to look like? I cannot get out of myself, so I, I stay in the quicksand because at least in the quicksand, although very painful, um, at least it's, it's, it's an existence that I know, perhaps I've always known. And so the payoff is I get to stay in that place. I get to, I get to stay in that place. What's probably going to be different for you this time, what certainly could be different, you know, the, the, the question to ask yourself is not what will be different, what could be different, Suri, if you allowed yourself to trust in this process? What could be different? We presume it won't be, right? But, but, but what could be different if you allowed yourself to immerse yourself in these steps without any expectation of, because it, it could be any worse, Right? I always tell people, don't worry about don't worry about about not sponsoring someone well. Uh, they're dying anyway. You know, this may be a very temporary situation. It's hard for you to see it in the moment, but but the reality is is that these steps, the best time to work them is when we're in the greatest pain. And yes, it is. Uh, it's horrible. It is horrible to put the heroin down when the heroin is the only thing that's giving us some sense of relief. We just want to, we just don't want to feel this pain. And yet it's so counterintuitive, Suri, that the way to transcend into God's arms, if you will, in a sense, however you view your higher power is in the midst of our pain and our trepidation, we're going to do this work anyway. Because when you put the food down entirely, that's going to feel at certain times very painful, emotionally painful, physically painful, on top of the other circumstances. These are situational circumstances. It's not going to be like this forever. These are situational circumstances. So what if, what if you started working the steps without an expectation of what the outcome would be? That's called surrender. We call that surrender. And and even if it's improbable, even if in your mind it's improbable, you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop, as I was. What if you just, day after day, you put one foot in front of the other, you just keep, keep doing the work and seeing what God has in store for you? Could it be any worse? I don't think so. I think the change certainly couldn't be any worse. What if this is all a bunch of BS and it's a big nothing? Might as well find that out sooner rather than later, right? So, anyways, I hope that helps, Suri. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Suri. Thank you so much. Larry, thank you 
very much for My offering pleasure. so much of yourself this morning with your beautiful presentation. Your compassion and your strength are appreciated on this line. We're going to close from page 164. You'll notice it's in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.